it's a real honor to be, to be here to um, uh, attempt to uh, uh, give a lecture, so to speak, um, in, uh, in, uh, in honor of uh, David Lean. Um, and, and I would think that, uh, for me, uh, I'd like, of course, to begin with editing. Um, it's a pretty appropriate starting point because David Lean, um, he began as an editor. And it's important for me because I, I really tend to think I, uh, uh, I tend to think as an editor myself, really, when I make pictures. I'm planning a film, I'm seeing it come together in my mind, um, but I'm, whenever that happens, I'm really thinking more of the flow of images, juxtaposition of images, actually the cuts, really. Now one affects the other. Um, I mean, I kind of anticipate a feeling of uh, wonder and excitement that I always have whenever I go into the editing room. Uh, I have this excitement about seeing and feeling what happens when you take one image and another image, not the same, uh, but you put the two together and it creates some sort of sensation, a kind of uh, spark. But really, these two disparate images spliced together create what I like to call a, a phantom image, which is in the mind's eye. Emotion, psychology, political. You make your point through that cut, in a sense. Um, now, having said that, you could take, I don't know, you could take that same cut, and you could remove one frame at the tail of the first shot and add two frames on the tail of the second, and it's completely different a sensation, a completely different um, phantom image in the mind is created. And that's the mystery and uh, the beauty of uh, really the heart of cinema for me. It's always what has compelled me to make pictures and always will be what compels me to make a film. I think you could feel it in David Lean's early films. I mean, uh, well, his early films, every frame, really. And I think he did about only 16 pictures in his lifetime, but Every single one of them counted. I mean, every frame of every picture. I think I was told the story, or I read it, I think when Dr. Zhivago was opening in New York, I had an article about him, and I believe, um, you may know it, but it's interesting because it had to do with his uh, rehearsal of Brief Encounter, I think, with uh, Celia Johnson and, and Trevor Howard. And he was rehearsing the dialogue with them. Of course, it's a no coward. Uh, and um, as a film editor, too, mind you, he took out his stopwatch, and he had them do the scene, and it ran about five minutes. This is excellent, da da da. They tried to get it down to four, and they did it again in four minutes. That's actually good. Get it to three. Did it? Get it to two. They finally settled on 90 seconds. And he knew, as an editor, how much time the scene was gonna play out in the film, how much time it would take. And he also knew that he needed to kind of get the actors in a place where they were comfortable with that time frame so they can carry and transmit the emotion of the scene in a way um, that felt right for them, really. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of communicating. Um, I like to call it a creative uh, negotiation, so to speak. And by the way, Lean wasn't the only guy who, uh, the only filmmaker who used a stopwatch on a set. Uh, Yashijiro Ozu had a special stopwatch made. He was made for him directly. And he used it on the set, and it counted seconds, but it also counted frames. 
And that's when you look at an Ozu film, remember that. He's counting frames, his editing is so precise. His sense of time, film time is so precise, extraordinary. Um, why I'm affected by the editing and the framing of an Ozu picture, whereas the sensibility and the temperament of them uh, sometimes is rather alien to me uh, in terms of my own uh, energy. Because the Ozu films are rather meditative. <laughs> Yeah, you talk about the actors in the frame, and I think there's always a kind of a misconception around the questions of editing and acting. You know, a lot of people guess, uh, a lot of people do assume that, you know, the actors do what they do, and then we, myself, the editor, we get together in a room and we determine the pace in the cutting. And I, I I've been aware of pictures like that. I'm aware of films like that, but I don't think they turn out that well, really. I mean, in cinema. We're working with subtleties. There's a curtain that, that blows a certain way in the frame, and an actor shifts his eyes a certain way. Another one does something that's unexpected with her hands, let's say. Uh, uh, there are silences, pauses, thoughts, even shivers, you know. The great silent uh, film master F.W. Murnau uh, once said that uh, in cinema we were dealing with, quote, uh, the most fleeting harmonies of atmosphere. Unquote. So atmosphere is very important. That includes sound. Huh? And we're dealing with human events in that atmosphere, with being in the frame, how a person moves and changes. Um, there's nothing generic about a close-up or a long shot, uh, because every take is really distinct and completely different on its own. Um, well, let's take the most iconic one from Lawrence of Arabia, um, the cut from the extreme close-up of Peter O'Toole blowing out the uh, match. right? Uh, to the desert. Um, first of all, I have to say that it's, uh, <laughs> it's a great sound cut. You know, from the ambience of the room in Cairo and the barely audible uh, sound of O'Toole's breath blowing out the, uh, uh, the, the flame to the wind blowing in the desert. Um, I mean, it's just as great a sonic transition as it is a visual transition or collision or juxtaposition, whatever you want to call it. Sound editing is, is really a great creative tool that isn't spoken of very much. Lee was a, Lean really was a master of the great sound cut. Uh, you, you just look at the opening credits of Bridge on the River Kwai. You're in the jungle, you hear these jungle sounds. Um, and uh, um, by the way, I saw the picture on its first release in New York at a reserved seat engagement in widescreen, Cinemascope. Uh, so uh, I was very much impressed. I was about 12 or 13 years old. I was very much impressed by the sound of those opening images. You hear the train in the background. First you hear the jungle, then you hear the train in the background, and then as it gets closer and closer, it suddenly cuts close, and the train swoops over the camera, and the title comes up. Uh, and the sound is, 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 is really makes the transition beautifully. Or you could take the retreat of the Turkish troops in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, you know, you have a massive shot. The entire army is retreating, right? They got their carts, they have animals, this, that. Um, but how does he start? He starts on, I, I believe, um, he starts on these two little tin cups that are, are clinking together on a cart. And the camera pulls back. And you see the, the army retreating, and then they hear um, um, uh, the, uh, their enemy approaching. And it's quite, it really, something about the clinking of those two tin cups does more than the sound of the thundering hooves of the horses that are, that are uh, about to attack them. Um, it, it, uh, the sound of those, two, of those two tin cups is sort of uh, uh, the isolation of the defeat is expressed in that sound.
really. Um, but there's so many more examples in, in lean, really, and, and really actually British filmmaking, excellent sound editing, and have always inspired me. I mean, there are other examples, American, of course, you can have James Dean slamming the door on his brother and his mother in East of Eden, uh, intercutting with the music that's being played in the bar, um, the sound dropout, and Hitchcock's Marnie when they're gonna rob the company safe, you know. Um, but getting back to the, the iconic close-up of O'Toole, you know, it might seem like an obvious thing to say, but I mean, if Lean had chosen another take, if he had another take of uh, Peter O'Toole with a slightly different facial expression, you know, uh, slight variance in movement, his eyes maybe, no matter how small it was, it would have been a different moment in film history. You know, different in ways that we might be able to articulate, but different all the same. Now, I, I came to making movies um, really at a different time, obviously, than when Lean started to uh, direct with Noel Coward. Uh, Lean's time, I would, of course, I was born in 42, so they were making films in 42, so I would think that you had to work your way up the industrial ladder, so to speak, and film business, obviously, was something that from the outside was impenetrable, I would think. By the time I started making movies, it was still tough to make movies, but it really started to seem less impenetrable, and it was actually more possible and the actual studio system in America was breaking down. Uh, you can actually make movies with this new lightweight equipment in the late 50s, early 60s, and the door was opening to young directors all around, all around the world. Things had changed and, and were still constantly changing, changing. I mean, Kazan was the key change for me. Uh, his discovery of Brando um, and Dean and the founding of the actor's studio, uh, with that, um, it shifted mid-century, and the emphasis for me, that spoke to me about cinema, was that the actor really became, I think, the center of gravity in the movies. I don't say you make the, the I'm not saying editing, shooting, writing, no, but the actor's presence was like the center of gravity, and that I connected to right away, you know. And when Lean did with uh, Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard, what Hitchcock found with his actors, that became a kind of different negotiation, creative negotiation for Kazan or Arthur Penn, and of course John Cassavetes, which was a, the main influence really for me. Um, this filmmaking of Kazan, Cassavetes, Shirley Clark, it thrived on the actors' energies. Uh, it built from the excitement of their gestures and the values that they explored together with their directors, you know. I mean, yeah, I was still, I, I still related strongly to the, the editing of the Soviet cinema, of Hitchcock, Sam Fuller, but um, the kinds of stories people were telling and the ways they were being told were changing radically. The, every new movie seemed to offer some new possibilities and provide, kind of provide an answer to, what, to the question, what is a movie? Uh, linear time, fracture. You got Bergman, Godard, forget it. I mean, just twisted time backwards and forwards. Antonioni, architecture of time. Fellini, Kubrick, and Alain René, who actually, got, who actually was very associated with comic books, in a sense, in terms of his editing. Interesting. Um, but each in their own way were shifting freely between subjective and objective and back again and reinventing the idea of what cinema and each movie, what it was supposed to be. Um, and it really changed the whole practice of editing. It opened up a whole, whole new world. I, you know, back in 65 or 64, 65, 
uh, Kazan had made America, America, and I think it was his next to last feature film. And he was, um, uh, uh, he had just put on the play, they just uh, staged the play uh, after the fall, and it was for Lincoln Center, and, and bottom line, it, it, it's not important, but the point is that Lincoln Center was still being built, and the theater uh, was presented uh, in, a, in a, a tent uh, on Green Street, which was opposite the little buildings we had at the motion picture department at NYU. It isn't the great school of the arts that it is now. And somehow, they convinced him to come and talk to the students. And um, he did so, I think, reluctantly. Um, I think this is the only film director, uh, as opposed to documentarians like uh, Leo Hurwitz and George Stoney and others who came to speak to us. But I think he was the only real feature film director who came to talk at the school. Um, he made a few statements, and then some of the kids asked questions. And one of the questions was, starting now, uh, what would you do differently if you could start all over again? And he answered, uh, I would start in the editing room. Mm. Now, of course, he's theater, essential theater. Came out of the studio system, where films were uniformly made. And now, he too was seeing the possibilities and the changes that I was seeing but he was seeing it from a different perspective, that of somebody whose time in the industry was coming to an end and almost wanted to capture this new expression, this new way of, this new language, really. So for me, it was the energy of the actors, the way they, the characters came alive in the film, the story, yes, but through character and the practice of editing, the miracle of editing, the idea of the cut uh, or when not to cut. <laughs> now, I'd like to show you a clip from my film, Mean Streets, a um, picture that was kind of special for me back in 1973. What are you doing? What, do you what are you doing? What are you doing to me, huh? What do you mean? Michael's been in my back all night. He's bothering me. Thank you. We did this scene in the last, I think it was 24 days shooting, and uh, we wanted to really, uh, we, this scene was not in the script, and we wanted to... Uh, uh, find the time to do this, and we squeezed it in for about an hour and a half, I think, with two cameras going. Um, shot very simply. I begged them for the time to shoot it, and we got it. And in fact, we stole it, really. Um, you know, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to have um, a scene that kind of embodied I, the way of behaving, relating, uh, moving, speaking, telling stories in a certain rhythm that I knew from my own life. And, uh, uh, De Niro knew it too because actually we were 16 years old when we first met um, in, uh, down the Lower East Side where we grew up. Uh, he was with a different group of uh, uh, young guys and, and I was from another group, but we did know each other. And so he, know, he knew the place, he knew the people that this film was written about too. Um, and so uh, he pointed out, he suggested to me that he thought he needed a scene because so much... Um, uh, so much of Charlie's behavior, Harvey Keitel's behavior, is uh, uh, his obligation, his sense of am I my brother's keeper, so to speak, for, for Johnny. So much of the film hinges, hinges on that. He wanted to, to, to show a scene that, uh, which, which, uh, which expressed uh, Johnny, Johnny Boy's charm and how he works it on Charlie. And uh, we did an improv in a rehearsal a few weeks earlier. And the only time we could squeeze this thing in was uh, uh, the last day of shooting, and uh, ultimately it went through many variations in the editing. Um, whole sections were taken out of, it. and finally, I think the last, 
The last time we screened the picture, we only screened it a couple of times, it was for Cassavetes. And we, uh, myself and Jay Cox were in the editing room, because I was cutting the picture. And uh, I said, oh, we took out all this stuff. He said, why don't we put it back in? I said, let's put it back in. And oh, John's going to see it and see what he thinks, you know? And he said, don't cut it. And we kept it that way. Uh, but it was um, something that, I guess maybe 20 years earlier, I don't know, you, you wouldn't have seen a, a scene like this in an American movie. I didn't honestly think, and it's not a kind of uh, odd humility or whatever, but I didn't think the film was even going to be released, quite honestly. I wanted to have something on film that showed the reality that I knew, you know. Um, uh, now, I mean, in a sense, there, there's a lineage to this, too, in American film culture. Um, <clears throat> there were the Howard Hawks films and John Ford. I mean, they let scenes play out, dialogue scenes. Um, the, the dialogue scenes, and I don't mean, uh, it didn't seem scripted. They seem, in many cases, almost improvised, or, or at least they had a looseness to them. And it, really, I think it was emphasizing character. There's, even in a minor film, John Ford's film, Two Road Together, it was the early 60s, I think. Now, look, I'm going I'm to describe it a bit, but um, the thing about it is that maybe he was getting a little bit of an influence from the foreign films that were coming at that time, too. This was a kind of a sequel to The Searchers, um, and it uh, starred Richard Widmark and Jimmy Stewart, and uh, Widmark plays a, uh, a colonel in the cavalry, and Stewart plays a marshal of a, a, marshal of a town uh, in the West, uh, and uh, they're all friends, and basically the plot has to do with... Um, Similar to the searches, they have to go and find uh, some young captives that were taken by the Comanche, some young kids, and bring them back to the white world. Um, and deals with the racism, deals with all of that. Uh, uh, now, it's a genre, it's a western, beautiful technicolor, and I'm watching the picture, I must have been about 21 or something, and very familiar with Ford, very familiar with Hawks, and that freedom of dialogue, and that freedom of character, I should say. And so I'm watching this thing, and he convinces, uh, Richard Widmark convinces uh, uh, Stewart to come with him on this trek to go find these things, and Stewart couldn't care less. He is nice and comfortable. He's sitting on the porch of the saloon. He has a nice white straw hat. He has beer being brought to him. Uh, and this being the early 60s, you could be a little more honest about what uh, the marshal of a town like that really was involved in, which was the gambling, um, prostitution, and he was just hanging out, having a good time, and he put all that behind him, and Widmark uh, convinces him to come along again, and he just doesn't want to do it. So they're on the road, they're traveling, and at one point they, they stop to, um, as one is wont to do, uh, water the horses. Uh, we didn't have much of that where I grew up, but uh, I, I understand in the Western, you water the horse, everybody sits down, you know. But the shot goes on, the picture's going on, you think you're going with the Comanche and this and that. And uh, you get this character, the kind of grumpy character that uh, Stewart is playing, uh, this kind of um, uh, Wyatt Earp, really, in a way, uh, but admitting that he was, uh, had a hand in everything in town. He was living terrifically. He didn't want to do anything that would upset this. Um, but in any event, what happens is that they, they sit down, the, the horses are here, they sit, and the camera now is in the middle of the, this creek, and it's shooting at the two of them, and they just sit on the edge of the creek, and there's, uh, what follows is a protracted scene in which they talk about their personal lives. They talk about uh, 
uh, how he's living. They're talking about his romantic relationship with the woman in the, uh, the bordello. Uh, he's complaining that he thinks that she wants to marry him, and Richard Widmark is outraged by that. Uh, I said, where's the plot? The plot was gone. <laughs> the whole thing is gone. It's just sitting there watching these two people relate. And in this dialogue, and actually more than dialogue, it's really the way their body language is. And it, believe me, I think a lot of it was improvised. I could tell you, just the way they played off each other. Um, you, um, it, 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 uh, it, it soars above the narrative. And it locks you into character. And you know them. You may disagree. They come from the 19th century. They have different political points of view, of course. But you know them. Um, and uh, it, you take the time to learn about them. And it's entertaining, too. They're entertaining characters. Um, uh, granted, and so in a way, I said, well, he did that. Uh, he just stops it that way. Cassavetes is a whole other thing that way. Uh, Hawks seemed to be doing that a lot. I said, and why don't we just shoot it uh, in the American shot, which is right below the knee up. You know, and then tighter over the shoulders. That's it. And don't uh, uh, do anything with the camera that would intrude on the character. Um, uh, and naturally, you know, you look at two road together, it's, as I say, a minor John Ford film, but um, I think uh, this comes across clearly. And uh, I happen to see it at that time at my development. Uh, somebody else 10 years earlier could have seen another film from the 1930s and get a similar response. I don't know, but I saw that. Uh, and it seemed to me to be interesting because that was, okay, that was a, a, a studio picture, Columbia Pictures, and that had big movie stars, Stewart and Widmark. We were, after the life of the street, we were interested in that. And in a sense, along with that, sense of freedom, of character, of being played by extraordinary actors, or, or in Cassavetti's films, uh, young actors or non-actors also. But in, along with that, the inspiration really was coming, coming from um, what, you, what was called documentaries, uh, where you deal with behavior, human events, and where you're, you're really out to capture the moment. And if I can combine all that, you know, that would be interesting to have a stylized film which has the, the, the which have a stylized film which has the immediacy of a sense of um, the actual in a way that you would sense in a documentary. Uh, I mean, at that time too, I've got to tell you, documentaries were not that categorized. So I always tell now, don't think, don't call it a documentary. Call it nonfiction if you want. Call it a movie. And don't, don't have anybody tell you what a documentary is and what it isn't. It's a film or at least a narrative moving images. Um, it's wide open now. You could do anything that way. And don't categorize yourself. I mean, at the time, the, the documentaries were being presented as feature films. I mean, there were films by Maisels and Penny Baker, Leacock, and Frederick Wiseman, and uh, Shirley Clark, uh, and this incredible film by Lionel Rogerson called On the Bowery, which uh, won a prize at Venice, but then was put away because it wasn't that... It really wasn't that, uh, what should I say, it didn't give an impression of the, uh, the great society, so to speak, because it dealt with all the derelicts on the Bowery where I grew up. And it's a hard picture to watch. I, I can't watch it again. But uh, I knew them. A lot of the people in the film, I would hang out with them, basically. It was to be able to hang out with them. They were on the corner. You know, and sometimes they were drunk, a lot of the times. Uh, and they were living and dying in the streets. And then 
you know, sometimes they were sober and they would work for, you know, the grocer and things like that. So I, we knew them. The, the soup kitchens were right there. So, I, you know, for me, ultimately, then to combine all this into a, a cinema that would be shown in theaters to people, that would be interesting, you know, uh, let alone the impact from neorealism that I saw at five years old. Uh, open City and Paisa and Bicycle Thieves I saw it on television when I was five years old. That really affected me that way because that seemed like where I was living, you see. Um, you know, so really then the, 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 the connection to make a documentary alongside my fiction films uh, was not a very far stretch. It was making another film that usually complemented the feature films. For example, Italian American is a film I made about my parents. Uh, and it's something of a companion piece to Mean Streets, um, made around the same time. American Boy uh, is kind of a companion piece to Taxi Driver. It's a darker film, no doubt. Um, but then I, I made another, uh, call it a documentary, uh, music film about the band and the farewell concert called The Last Waltz. Um, and I designed it in a way that was quite different from other rock and roll documentaries that were being made at the time. There were so many being made at the time. This is 76, by the way. Um, I was at Woodstock, and I worked on Woodstock for a while in the editing. So I'm very aware of, uh, you know, Monterey Pop, Penny Baker, all that. Um, uh, but I wanted to go up, uh, I wanted to take it a step further. And I said, I'm not interested in shooting that way. It's been done, done, done beautifully. I said, what if we do it in 35 millimeter? Now, 35 at that time, it was almost unheard of to do a concert that way. We had some control of the concert, but we took, but if you do multiple cameras, 35 millimeter, six cameras, let's say, uh, you're still dealing with um, uh, limitations, right? Um, but if you have that and you could really design around it, let's say, you could, you could know where the camera should be on which line of uh, lyric and uh, which uh, uh, riff on a guitar and that sort of thing. That would be amazing. You can cut it like a fiction film. You know, most important, no shots of the audience reacting. You just stay with the performers. Oh, here's a clip. Well, uh, um, yeah, the 35 millimeter made a big difference. Uh, again, that film was an experiment. We started thinking making it in, in, in a, a video, then uh, 16 millimeter, and that sort of thing. But then we went all the way with 35. Um, it, it, it's uh, in, in its right in its right place in terms of the sound. There is a title at the beginning of the film. This film should be played loud. So it really should come up. But um, uh, in, in that case, uh, the, uh, uh, the interesting thing here on the weight, I chose the weight because I love the song. Uh, it's um, very, very special, to say the least, uh, epic in a way. Um, and it's interesting because the last waltz, uh, the last waltz concert, lasted about seven hours or so. We had six cameras, and the seventh camera, the Dave Myers was on it handheld. But all the other cameras worked uh, uh, very specifically as to, as to which lines uh, and uh, uh, 
who was going to be singing when and where. And what happened was that, of course, you know, when you're dealing with the 35 millimeter, um, the odds are you're going to run out of film on most of the cameras at some given point. You're not quite sure when. Uh, and sync motors to keep everything at 24 frames a second. Those would run out of, uh, uh, they need to be recharged. And so sure enough, the most important song of the band, uh, when they get to sing it, I think the fourth hour of the concert, um, all the cameras were down. <laughs> we just ran out. I think one camera was on, I think. And so that led us to realize we have to add it into the picture. But actually, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, um, out of necessity, something special was created, because then I was able to really design this in a way uh, that would have the relationship between the camera and the music the way I really wanted to. In other words, camera, uh, there weren't, it wasn't like shooting the song with six cameras and then do it in the cutting. The first four bars, that's the shot. It goes from here, it goes to there. The next four bars, similar. Then the refrain, take the load, uh, put the load, uh, take the load off Annie and put, put it right on me. Each time it's repeated, the intercutting gets more complex until finally it's intercut with the whole group because it's all one voice, one character singing that, you see. And so all of that was designed in circular moves, uh, like choreography, really. Um, it was kind of designed to sort of put you into the music and also to play up intuitive, the intuitive nature of the musicians, um, the emotion between the musicians, who really become characters. Now, again, if you see the picture, uh, you really get the intuitive action between the musicians and the scenes that are done during the concert. You see them play off each other, particularly with Dylan and, and uh, Levon and, and Robbie uh, towards the end. Uh, Dr. John comes on and he sings. You could see what's going on. You could see how they're running this machine, so to speak, uh, and how they play off each other. Um, but this was shot in the studio, and we shot a couple of other pieces in the studio, and then the film began to um, emerge. It took about two years, um, and of course I was greatly inspired by this music. In fact, uh, music has been, for me, uh, really growing up with music around all the time, uh, has been for me one of the key inspirations. Sometimes I just imagine movement or people. Uh, I don't know where they'd wind up in a film, if they ever would, but music of all kinds was the great inspiration. Um, and usually, I really don't start seeing a movie, a picture, in my head until I start hearing the music. And the Irishman, it's in the still of the night by the five satins. That's it. I know that. I knew it going in. And that's the tone of the movie. You know. uh, again, rock and roll was, you know, uh, a lot of this is inspired by other cinema. Um, for example, the ballet in the red shoes, uh, or the musical numbers in Minnelli's uh, The Bandwagon. But you know, those pictures astonish me, there's no doubt. Um, and it had to do with this relationship between the camera and the music in the red shoes, or in the Minnelli musicals. Um, and this is something that I think came to fruition for me in The Last Waltz. Now, I'll show you another clip of another picture. Less than a minute to go, and Lamata is losing the title that he won from the gallant Marcel Serdan. Well, I hear, the point is here, uh, in Raging Bull, uh, because I didn't understand, I, having asthma and all that sort of thing, I was a kid, and uh, all through my life, 
prevented me from uh, being involved with any kind of sport. Even the word makes me nervous. <laughs> they say sports, I jot, but I, you know, BBC sports, no, I turn it off, you know. I turn the sound off at least. Sorry, I know it's extraordinary, but I, I can't. I just, it, people running after balls and, and then, and, and two people in a ring hitting each other, really? I mean, <laughs> I don't get it. I just don't get it. So, um, I mean, I get the fight, I get it, but it has to be, you know, you have to have the rules, I get it, but you know, the fights I uh, was aware of were not necessarily bound by rules, so um, I, for me, it was very suspect. A lot of gambling going on, a lot of people making money on these poor guys, and so, I don't know, I, I, I uh, didn't really want to make Raging Bull that way, and uh, De Niro and I had gone through uh, mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, and then everything changed in New York, New York. Everything was different, and somehow we came back together again, and ultimately I understood what I wanted to do with Raging Bull. Uh, but one key thing was um, the fight scenes. Uh, not understanding, necessarily, the uh, genius of the boxer. You know, the chess game that goes on instinctively in the ring. The power. I... I I thought it was really interesting. I was watching this fight, uh, Muhammad Ali and Leon Spinks, in the second fight, and I was in a hospital, I remember, and uh, recuperating from uh, some asthma thing, and, and I remember that it was the cameras in the corner for the first time, in the corner of the, the fighters, and about the ninth or 10th round, obviously Muhammad Ali was winning, and uh, uh, it was very precise, uh, a lot of dancing around the ring, but he was sitting there in the corner, uh, and you had the mic, you could hear what he was saying, and he had his head down, and he says, oh, what round am I? He said, ninth. He goes, am I winning? Said, yeah, yeah, you win. Then bang, out again. He had no idea where he was. I said, that's the picture. That's the picture. Let's go in that head. Imagine what it's like you're in that ring. You hear, you hear things differently. You see things differently. You perceive, you perceive, all of, quote, reality, unquote, completely differently. And I thought that was more important to convey that. Um, so in a sense, it's really working, uh, working from the same idea. Uh, but rather than being inside the music and the interplay between the musicians, we're inside Jake's head, in a sense. His obsession, we're inside there. Um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, pretty much that's where we stayed. As a quick story, I'll tell you. Um, uh, it's uh, well, actually, it's less about the actual fight itself and the moves and how he fought as a, a, a fighter than uh, Jake's perception of the fight and his experience of it. Um, similar to the uh, uh, what you see in Moirashira in the Red Shoes ballet sequence, it's the idea of the dance. It's how she perceives what she's doing emotionally, psychologically as she dances. I follow that through in Taxi Driver. Everything from De Niro's point of view, you know. I remember um, first talking about, to, about Raging Bull uh, to De Niro, uh, and I, it was before I really was involved making the film, but I, I didn't understand how to, how to uh, deal with the, the boxing. And um, he was talking to Norman Mailer, because Jake LaMotta was friends with him, and Mailer was saying, uh, you have to understand, this is an incredible fighter, et cetera. And I said, well, I'm gonna make the film, I'm not showing any of the fight scenes. 
And Mailer said, no, you have to. He was an incredible fighter. He did this and he did that. He really understood it. I said, oh, I guess so. I have to figure a way to do these fight scenes. And usually fight scenes in movies bored me in, in a ring. You know? And um, so finally I did that. I, I finally saw the way to do it. Stay inside. Perception of the fighter. You know, stretching time and space. Sound going out. You don't hear things and suddenly you're punched. You know? uh, and uh, about a year later I saw him at a dinner. And I said, hey, Norman, I said, I put, I, I put all the, the boxing scenes in, Raging Bull, because you told me about that. He goes, yeah, it's the only stuff I didn't like in the picture. <laughs> okay, all right, I get it. No, but he meant, you know, I get it, but now I was going for something else. Anyway, let's take a look at this other clip. Hey, Beans, he got a table in the back. He said we can sit with them. He's you. Which Beans? Huh? This was a, a, another example of what I try to do with the, uh, the music, uh, combined with the slow motion uh, in a way, uh, puts you in, in Jake's perception, his point of view, outside the ring. Uh, the obsession takes over, the obsession with Vicky, uh, and it breaks up the time of the scene. Uh, maybe minutes have gone by, maybe hours, I don't know. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the, the spell is broken by the uh, insistent intruding of the piano being hit. By the way, that piece of music is based on a, uh, an old 78 I had by Harry James called Flash. And uh, that's Garth Hudson from the band doing that, remaking it on the piano. Um, uh, his, um, uh, that intrudes in a way, and it picks up just at the moment that we see her sitting at the table. And then, um, after the fight, they go, he goes outside and the drums come in from Big Noise from Winnetka, uh, and you're back in a dream in a way. You're watching Vicky drive away in slow motion, uh, but the intense beat of the drums is still there, and the whistle is kind of haunting, the whistle in that song. Uh, and then the, the sound of the fight breaks it up again. Bang, back to another kind of reality. So in a, in a different context, it really does become a musical event. And that's how I perceived it. Um, the, the obsession and, and the music, the obsession and the music become the same thing. This clip. Yare! Dosta! Yare! Fra! Dosta! Yare! Thank you. Uh, it's an interesting uh, clip because I, um, it does fade out and you think it's over, but it cuts right back in, and you're still there. Uh, it reminds me of the feeling I had when I first saw Black Narcissus and uh, in color, because we used to see it in black and white at first, and uh, Kathleen Byron faints in uh, the bungalow that uh, David Farrar is in, and I believe it, the, the screen goes kind of red, I think, and fades out. And normally you expect another scene to begin. Instead, that pops back in as she's come back to, to consciousness. And so um, that's something I've always uh, uh, admired uh, in a way, and I, it, it certainly found its way into this sort of thing. Even to, the, to a certain extent, I can go to Psycho with uh, Hitchcock, uh, where um, Janet Leigh is killed in the, uh, in, in the, in the, in the shower, uh, which is frightening enough. But, after, uh, but the scene continues with the cleanup. It's almost as if you don't want to be there. Now, I'm, I'm talking about a person who saw that film in its first week of showing, of, of presentation in, in a major theater. 
on Broadway. So we had no idea that the main character was going to be killed off in the first 40 minutes, you know, and let alone that the person's going to come in and clean up the operation, you know. But this is a clip from Silence. It's a project I, I had wanted to make for many years. Um, it took a while to get the script right, but we had lots of legal issues also. I mean, David Lean, of course, had his, his own cherished project, and that was the adaptation of uh, Joseph Conrad's Nostromo. And unfortunately, you know, he never, uh, never got to make that film. And somehow I finally got to make Silence. I mean, but I, while we were making the picture, I was thinking of him a lot. Uh, and what, I could only imagine what he could have done on Nostromo with the technology that we have today that I had on Silence. We shot most of the film in 35 millimeter. Uh, but for the night scenes, we used the Alexa, which is the new HD cameras. I mean, they're able to see things, to actually see things that film cameras simply can't. And we were shooting in pretty remote locations. And what you could do in post, of course, with this technology, and many of you making films, you would know. Um, but you kind of take it for granted, I think, uh, because the post is almost infinite. You can, the color, you could do anything with color, light, Framing, you could reframe, you could alter speed, uh, you can alter elements in the same frame, take a character from one take and put him in another take, put her in the opposite way. Just it, it's um, uh, you could see, and the best part of it is that you could see, you could see and hear everything immediately as it's done. Uh, you no longer have to imagine what a dissolve would look like. You can see it right away. Um, the old way, if you put a dissolve in the cut. With 35 millimeter film, uh, you'd have to wait, send it to, um, first of all, you have to put a slug in there, or you have to put grease pencil marks with a line. And the line would, as it was being projected, would give you the sense of a wave of an image fading out in a way, but you'd have to imagine it. And then you'd have to go to try um, a temporary dissolve, which would cost money, which is very difficult. Lots of films didn't have that until they finally had the final cut of the picture. Um, now, granted, and say, oh, it was terrible. That's, that wasn't that. It's just that's what we had. So we made it work, you know. But um, I now, you know, I imagine how all of this would have felt to, all of this new stuff would have felt to David, David Lean, to King Vidor, Thorold Dickinson, you know. Um, imagine what they would have done with these tools, all these choices. That's sometimes not a great thing to have all these choices, you know. Limitation is good often, really is. Uh, these choices could be infinite. Uh, would the tools have changed their art? Right? Well, yes, in every way, I suppose. I mean, even if it did, and I'm sure it would have, they would have reflected their own time in completely different ways than the films that they made. Um, as filmmakers, we all make use of whatever tools we have. and. When we do utilize those tools, we can only really speak in the time in which we live, and we have no choice there. Um, I often think about these questions, and for the younger filmmakers, I know and admire Joachim Trier, and Joanna Hogg, um, Ari Aster, Christy Puyu, and so many others. Uh, in effect, they've had these tools, I believe they've had these tools around them all the time. So how does it feel to them? It's quite different than it does to me, I think, but how? Um, now, in, in this scene, and I'm going to show you, I'm dealing with the same questions of time, that uh, silence, I should say, 
I was dealing with the same questions of time that Lean was dealing with when he took out his stopwatch. And I had these people on, uh, you know, Shinya Tsukamoto and Yoshi or Yoda. Um, they were stuck on these crosses for real uh, at, on, outside that cave, and those waves were coming in. Um, so how do I deal with time? How do I compress it so that, how do I compress the time um, thinking of that stopwatch so that you feel the agony of the men on the cross and the point of view of Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver? Is it really their point of view in terms of the actual distance or is it something else? Is it their, is it their perception instead which blends with the experience of the men who are suffering on the crosses? Do they see it closer in their mind's eye when Hitchcock did uh, The Wrong Man, a film I really like a great deal with Henry Fonda, true story, um, he, um, he plays a man who's uh, incarcerated, uh, he's an innocent man, but he's incarcerated. All the circumstantial evidence points to him as being the culprit. And there's a great scene, which uh, is very Bressonian, actually, but uh, they put him in the, uh, the tombs on, uh, on Ken, I think on Broom Street in New York, downtown. Uh, the tombs were these these uh, cells below the street, and they slammed. They put him in, and they slammed the the uh, the door shut. And Fonda, who's innocent, is playing. You know, being very docile. The door slams of the cell, and he sits on the the bed, whatever the little cot, and he looks around the cell, and you have his face. And then we see what he sees in that cell, and it it feels less like. What he's looking at, when you see what he sees, it feels less like a literal optical point of view than his own growing sense of entrapment. Uh, he looks at the lock on the door. He looks at the sink. Then he looks at the corner. Then he looks at the corner of the ceiling. And all these, call them inserts, but right to the point of view shots, they're very specific. There is probably more deep, more uh, comprehensively directed than when he's directing the actor. It's the level of the camera. Is it his point of view? Is it literally at his point of view when he's seated? Or is it a little higher? You know, because really what, you, what these um, point of view shots express is the uh, imprisonment, how he feels in his mind's eye. What that sink, look, it's not really a sink. It's the prison. That corner of the ceiling, why that corner of the ceiling? This is the prison in his mind. Uh, so when you see these cutaways, they're not easy. They're not just cutaways. Usually, sometimes we have to do, sometimes I ask somebody to do it for me, and as, as best he or she does, I have to usually go back and do it myself because it needs a, it needs a, um, it needs a, a point of view. You know, it needs a point of view. And here, it was so specific and so beautifully done. I mean, these are all the, 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 these, these are the same questions that we all face going back to the Soviet filmmakers of the silent era to Hitchcock, to Powell and Pressburger, to Kazan, um, Kubrick, me and my friends, and, 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 and what was then known in the ancient world as the New Hollywood, uh, to now Ari Aster and Joachim Trier and Joanna, Joanna Hogg and Christy Puyu. I mean, these are the questions that you have to deal with if you're making a film to anyone who decides what you leave in the frame and what you leave out. And that, that's the fundamental issue. Where do you put the camera? Which take do you use? Where do you, where do you cut or not cut? That's the basic question.
This is a man who had Sally Bugs strangle Tony Three Fingers Castellino just because Three Fingers was coming up big in the union. And it was his own guy. It was his own guy. Well, this is from The Irishman. And uh, that's Al Pacino and Bob De Niro. And uh, look, we've come full circle from the first scene I showed you. Uh, you know, working with the actors, trying to capture again kind of a beauty of movement, gestures, speech. A lot of the stuff I recall from my own life growing up um, and that I could really explore further with you know, incredible artists like Pacino and De Niro. Um, Al and I, uh, Al Pacino and I, worked, this is the first time we worked together on this picture. And Bob and I returned to working together again after, I think the last picture we worked on together was uh, Casino, 1995. So this took a long time to find the right project and to uh, find the right space, so to speak, in which we could operate. And also try to learn more about ourselves, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, and maybe about making a movie, you know. And we're looking even more closely from this vantage point in our lives at the age of 75, 76. We're looking at friendship, betrayal, power, trust, self-preservation, and then maybe uh, the possibility of a redemption, see. Uh, so I think, I know at least in my case, we all return to what obsesses us, what haunts us, uh, to the questions that deepen and really become more mysterious as time goes by as we ask them. Uh, as I said, we filmmakers use whatever means we have at our disposal, technical, creative, human, uh, to tell our stories and get, and get our movies across. For this reason, I think the filmmakers of the future might feel just as far from me as I do from David Lean, and uh, just as close. So I want to thank you. Um, I've tried to cover a lot of territory uh, or give you an idea of um, uh, this long, strange trip. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was thank fun. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I'm Francine Stock, by the way, and, and I'm here just really to have a very quick question to Martin Scorsese, and then I'm going to throw it open just for a few moments uh, to all of you uh, for your questions about the lecture and the very generous insights that you've given us over the past hour or so. Um, I have recently seen The Irishman, and I was overwhelmed by it for all sorts of reasons. I admired it greatly, but more than that, I was moved by it. So I think in terms of the circularity that you're talking about there, about um, stylized filmmaking, it was a phrase you had about stylized filmmaking, mm -hmm. having a real sense of the real, mm -hmm. that that is very palpable in The Irishman. And I wonder how, as the years go by, how important that becomes to you. Well, I mean, I've tried over the years to find it in other ways. I know that uh, one can say stylized filmmaking, whether you're Jean-Marie Straub or it's uh, Fritz Lang, uh, there is a truth and there's a reality there. It's coded in different ways. Style, I don't know, I'm not, uh, uh, it, there are certain things um, by certain filmmakers, let's say, that I'm affected very emotionally by. Um, yet I can never, uh, how should I put it, feel, feel comfortable even trying to, uh, imitate or steal or try to do anything like this. It's, it's, you have to find, but there is a truth to it. 
Now, what's there? And they're using a certain artifice in a way, maybe. And I was trying, you know, I come from this thing where you're, you're in the streets and some of the best actors you know are the, are the people with you in the street. Uh, they really are, he or she. And uh, I take that. That's why I like the documentaries. I take that and try to put that up on the screen and then see if it could be in a stylized setting, in a way. Um, ultimately, uh, by the time we get to Irishman, I think the stylization strips away. Uh, it really does. These were experiments. Uh, we've been very lucky over the past 40 years to be able to quote experiments sometime, unquote, sometimes, I should say, within a system that uh, is a commercial system, you know. Um, and you find at, at times you may delve into genre and you find it's exciting to do a genre this way and that way. And a few years later, it's, mm, I, it's not quite right for me. I mean, and what I mean by that, so whether it turns out well or not, I'm not sure. But I think it's my own enthusiasm. In other words, you feel, let's do that again. Uh, in a case, in certain types of pictures, you say, let's not do that again. Like, <laughs> let's do something else. Like, you know? And so you really get into it. And what eventually happened, it came down to this, which is really, um, ultimately, as you say, full circle. And I, how should I put it? It's hard to put in words. But we knew, when, when Robert De Niro, we were trying to make this film and it wasn't working out. And uh, Eric Roth, who wrote uh, The Good Shepherd, and Bob was about to direct that, uh, gave him this book called I Heard You Paint Houses. And he gave it to him as research material for this character that we were supposed to be doing in another film. And Bob was taken by this, by this character, Frank Sheeran. Uh, but mind you, we had another picture going. The studio was ready to give us the money to make this movie, but it was more of a genre, you know? And uh, as he was describing this book to me, uh, it became rather emotional. It didn't matter what he said. I could see the feeling, I could see the understanding, and I knew then if we were, gonna, if we were going to uh, uh, revisit that milieu, you know? then this is coming from another place entirely, and maybe it's just because we got older. I don't know. We look back, things have happened. Um, the transition is happening. Friends are going, you know. Family's gone. So you, you, you tend to think uh, differently about life, certainly. Uh, and in this picture, the character is there. That, it's said from that vantage point. It really is. And so that allowed us to go deeper and deeper into it, and um, it was very clear in the shooting, very clear. Uh, there, were no very, there were very few uh, angles or uh, camera moves or anything that I uh, put in that uh, I thought might be used. I, I, it was pretty down, cut down to the essentials, quite honestly, um, and worked with the actors. Steve Zalian, terrific script, and from that script there were bits and pieces of improvisation that occurred. Nick Pileggi helped us, a number of people helped us. But um, I guess we're making a film about all of us, me and Bob, Joe, and Al. Okay, questions please. Um, can I ask you, there are microphones around, and can I ask you if you're going to ask your question, if you could stand up, please. And as I said before, if possible, it'd be great to keep it to those, kind of the content of, uh, of the lecture this evening. This afternoon, yeah, please. Okay, a hand. There's one right down here. Uh, there's a microphone coming straight down, and there's one up there. Thank you. 
Hi, uh, thank you, first of all, um, for your time and your work. It's an honor to have you here. Um, you've spoken very eloquently about your formative experiences in the cinema. Um, and on The Irishman, you're working with Netflix, um, which some people will see in cinemas, but some people won't have the opportunity or won't choose to. What are your feelings about the strength of online streaming companies in the film industry at the moment? Well, uh, of course, it's uh, in the moment. We are in a, a moment not only of evolution, but revolution, in a sense of uh, pretty much the whole world and everything we know, the old political systems, uh, wanting, uh, uh, ideology, all changing. Uh, it's almost as if the 21st century is beginning now. Um, technology is going with it, you see. And that also means cinema goes with it. And I think because of the technology, we really do have to think in terms of, uh, we don't lock ourselves into one cinema. I mean, yes, see a movie in a theater. It's the best with an audience, it's fantastic. That's the way to see it. Um, but the actual concept of cinema has become something which is not definable. Something could play as a hologram. Something could play in virtual reality. There's going to be a, an extraordinary epic in virtual reality at some point. Um, it, we have to start expanding uh, what we think of as narrative. You see, I believe that, whether it's music, literature, uh, and, and particularly the visual image. Um, and so, in a case like this, to preserve theater experience, yes. However, in this case, for all these years, because of many different uh, many different uh, elements that came together a little too late for us to make this picture uh, with a Hollywood studio, uh, partially because there were so many flashbacks and I didn't want to work. Uh, if I want to make a picture with De Niro and Al and Joe, I didn't want to work with actors pretending to be them younger. Half the picture. I'd have to explain who Frank Sinatra is. <laughs> but, you know, I'm serious. I mean, oh, they know Sinatra, but they don't know Sinatra. They don't know it. <laughs> they don't know the bar. They don't know the shot of scotch. They don't know what it is. They're just Tony Bennett. They don't know it. <laughs> Joe Stafford. They don't know. Okay. So going from that, I said, oh, God, no, I can't. I can't do it. So eventually came out this idea of the CGI, which I was very suspect of. Uh, but uh, Pablo Hellman um, came on, on the set of... Uh, of silence, he came to me and he said, well, he was doing the CGI for us in, si in silence. And we're in Taiwan shooting supposedly Macau with Karen Hines, you know, <laughs> we're shooting the scene. And he says, I have, I think we should really try this. I said, I don't, I said, don't, don't have these, uh, the, the people in this film, they're not gonna, they're not gonna act with the uh, tennis balls. And they're just not gonna do it. It, it won't even last a half a second. It, it, you know, it, 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 they have to play off each other. In any event, he said, I said, come back if you, you get an idea how to do it. And eventually what happens is that he came back with, uh, a few months later um, with the possibility of almost imperceptible markers on their faces and uh, very complex. I can't even begin to, to get into it. Um, that locked us into a situation where, you know, the picture was big uh, in terms of script length. Uh, there were 150 locations or whatever, although there's a sense of anonymity as to whatever, wherever they are. You know, the power that they wield is done over in the corner over there. They're not here on a stage. And so 
And that's not a conspiracy theory. It's just natural the way these things work. And so in terms of that, I said, we can control it. And I told De Niro, I said, I know how to do this. I said, I think I know how to do it. Um, and what that meant was, of course, uh, the money needed to, for shooting days, but also the cost of the CGI. And no Hollywood studio would do this picture. They don't make them anymore this way. And also, they weren't interested in me and Bob. They're interested in me, Leo, me, something else, maybe that. As long as it fits into, you know, uh, but uh, not with Bob and I, and doing the story about some older, you know, gangsters from the 50s and 60s and 70s, I'm not interested. And a couple of guys tried. Brad Gray did try, I remember, but it didn't work out. And Netflix called, and they said they would do it. And I talked to Bob, uh, Rick Yorn, who's the exec producer, and I said, you know, I think, let's do it. He goes, you know, it mainly is streaming. I said, but it will be shown in theaters. He said, yes. Well, that's the trade-off. Trade-off, there's no interference, full budget, and a schedule that would allow for the CGI and, I have to say, uh, the rhythm of the shoot is attuned to uh, our age group. <laughs> it's not, I mean, you just don't push that way. You have to go, all of us, looking at each other, okay, we can get this done today, but tomorrow we're gonna have to shuffle this around, guys. You know, do this scene here, okay. But it, 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 going in knowing that. And so um, that was the name of the game. That's it. Now, where, where do young people go to get their films financed now? I have no idea. You're not going to go to a Hollywood studio or the big studios here, I guess. I don't know if there are any. I don't know. Really, I'm out of that picture, really. Um, and then, when you get them made, where are they going to be shown? When the theaters are all taken over by the... Um, Theme park films, <laughs> where the theaters have become amusement parks. Now, that's all fine and good, but don't invade everything else in that sense. Um, it's fine and good for those who enjoy that type of film. And by the way, a lot of those films are made, knowing what someone goes into them now, I admire what they do. It's not my kind of thing. It simply is not. And uh, uh, it's created another kind of audience that thinks cinema um, is that. And you know you have a child, and the child wants to see that picture. What are you going to do? I don't know. It's up to you. Uh, you have um, the audience that sees them now, the fans that see those pictures now. Uh, um, they were raised on pictures like that, but better pictures, I think. I mean, meaning, I said the technique and everything else, very well done. But I go back. There's only one Spielberg. There's only one Lucas. You see, so no, James Cameron. It's a different thing now. Um, with that kind of, uh, kind of a, an invasion, so to speak, of this in, in, the, in the theater. Um, and Can I, I we yeah. need to get, we've only got time for one more question. Oh I my, think, so. I, I know, go on, I know, sorry. I know, I'm so tight, <laughs> I'm getting But old. it's great, the answers are so great. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Let us, can we get that microphone uh, up there? Take me off, where's John? <laughs> take me away, yes. Yeah. Okay, there's, there's actually one to your left there. Yeah. If you would like to stand up, please. Thanks. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm a documentary editor, um, so it's been really interesting to hear what you've been saying about um, editing. And um, it was great for you to start your speech talking about editing. Um, that was great because it's obviously 
overlooked a lot of the time. Um, but I was just wondering, is there um, a particularly, are there different ways that you approach editing in terms of drama and documentary? Or do you kind of approach them, you know, with the same kind of fundamental principles, really, whether you make a drama a good, or doc? That's a good question, because I try not to. I try not to. I try to make them the same. And I try, I think I've learned more from during, I mean, learned from me uh, in my fiction films, learned more from doing oh, uh, uh, documentaries on Bob Dylan and George Harrison, uh, Living the Material World, taught me a great deal um, about st structure, music, uh, structure as music, you know. Um, and in effect, you'll see, in, in an event, you'll see, if you see Irishman, you get that uh, the structure should be as free and as flowing as uh, music or solos in jazz, or solos in rock, in a way, and then focus down, focus down for another movement in the last hour of the film, a different kind of movement, um, like a symphony in a way. So music really, really pushes this, and editing is all that, really. It's pacing, rhythm, and so the freedom uh, to burst open the narrative, so to speak, in, in uh, nonfiction uh, informs the fiction films, I hope, up you know, as, as best I can. Great. Thank you very much thank you. indeed. That, and thank you, thank you for your questions. But most of all, Martin Scorsese. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.